Howdy. Welcome to Healthcare Ain't Easy with Chris Matthew. I'm Chris Matthew. Today, healthcare can be exciting one day and confusing the next. It can be awe-inspiring or it can be terrifying. With AI now part of the equation, this often leads to more questions than answers. I've spent the last two decades navigating healthcare in a various amount of ways, but I'm going to be your guide here as we explore how AI and technology in general will impact healthcare and all of us. Through conversations with some of our most respected thought leaders like we have today, we're going to explore where we've been, where we're going, and how it affects the way we live every day. Ultimately, although healthcare certainly is difficult, it ain't easy. But we hope that by listening to this conversation and the ideas that we share will revitalize your optimism in the future of our industry and ultimately in our ability to care for humanity. As we continue to explore the challenges of the healthcare industry is facing, we know that there are many things we have to figure out, but we also know that communication and collaboration are among the first steps for a successful outcome for all of us. My why is to connect with people so that we boldly contribute to an improved world. If you happen to be generously sharing your time with us, we want to know what's your why. Drop us a note, follow us, because I am genuinely interested to hear and to learn and to find out where people find their purpose and their drive and their why. What am I excited about right now? Well, let me share. Today is my mama's 70th birthday. Happy birthday, mama. I'm so forever grateful to you and your never-ending dedication to our family and the love you give so generously to all of us. You and dad, you've shown us what to do to give generously. You've shown us how to try to recreate what you've given us as a family and we and, and my brothers, your kids, we all try and aim for that high bar you've set. We love you a lot. We are excited to celebrate you today and enjoy the blessings of another year together. Love you. So today, I am very pleased to welcome an advisor, a guide, and, and a friend, Dr. Jeff Kerr, uh, to the show. Great to be here, Chris. Howdy. Welcome. Dr. Kerr is the Chief Medical Officer at Baylor Scott & White Medical Center of McKinney. Dr. Kerr has a rich background starting in community health centers and over 20 years now, has been growing and leading within the Baylor Scott and White Health System. He served the past 10 years as the Chief Medical Officer of Baylor Scott and White McKinney, a 200-bed hospital and one of the fastest-growing population centers in the country. Dr. Kerr, thanks so much for being here with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Chris. Thank you. Well, let's start with what's good for you today. Today's my mom's birthday, so that's what's great for me. What's good for you? That That's a pretty good thing. So happy birthday, mom, for you. That's, <laughs> that's great. For me, uh, gosh, busy season. Um, looking forward to uh, some uh, fall foliage here soon with my my best friend and bride, Michelle. We're going to get away next week, so that's pretty good. You're definitely then leaving the state of Texas that because you said fall foliage, and that doesn't happen. That's right. Around here, it just goes brown and falls <laughs> off. So we're heading to Colorado for a few days. Oh, that's going to be amazing. Yeah. That's great. So let's start with, um, you know, before we get into your role as a chief medical officer, give us the highlight reel about where you're from and, and what helped shape you to who the person you are today. Right. Well, um, in a nutshell, Chris, I've had a really uh, atypical career path. Um, grew up in Texas in the Houston area. 
uh, went to University of Texas undergrad, uh, had a brief stint away from school, worked in the Washington, D.C. area, and then returned to Texas to enter med school and marry, and then uh, very quickly came up through uh, med school and residency training in family medicine, and uh, after that time joined uh, the Baylor Scott and then Baylor Healthcare System, Legacy Baylor System, uh, after about eight years in Waco, came to Dallas in 2003 uh, and have been with Baylor Scott and White Health uh, for the past 20 years. And the uh, uh, role that I play today is not one that I ever uh, envisioned playing uh, 20, 30 years ago. Uh, so my uh, career development has been uh, pretty... Uh, what we say extemporaneous, and I've really been guided by the things that energized me. And so when I've made changes or moved into a different area, it's generally because uh, something really drew me, my interests, or I could see uh, where uh, I could bring the most value. And so that's that's why I'm here today, as a matter of fact. Amazing. Yeah. Help us uh, understand, break down for us maybe, at what point in life did you determine medicine was going to be a calling or a profession for you that you you were going to be sure. passionate about? Because I believe you got to have passion to commit to that level of education and training and, and pursuit. Yeah. So um, perhaps like many other people, uh, as a younger person, I thought about being a doctor. I was, uh, as a child, uh, I have a congenital heart condition. And so I spent a lot of time back and forth at Texas Children's Hospital really every year until, gosh, I was in junior high or so. So I had a lot of exposure to the healthcare system. And um, I think I internalized that and then figured out maybe I had the, the uh, skill set to go, go that way. And uh, so for a brief time, I, I thought I might uh, pursue a career in uh, uh, PhD psychology, which, which I was actually pursuing graduate program in, in psychology when I decided to study for the MCAT and go to med school. But so I've always uh, been intrigued with the sciences and the healing arts people. I love to communicate. And uh, so for me, it was it was a pretty obvious uh, pathway. Yeah. How did you find your path and your selection to family medicine of all the specialties? Yeah. So similarly, uh, well, so full disclosure, um, I'm a nerd. You know, I've told you this. You know this about me. I'm a learner. I love to learn. Uh, and so in med school, I loved every every course and every uh, clerkship that I uh, took. And I was really torn because, you know, beyond surgery, loved surgery. Beyond pediatrics, loved it. Beyond OB, loved it. Uh, and I ultimately was uh, decided that family medicine would give me the biggest breadth of clinical uh, exposure and I love the idea of having continuity relationships with patients and families and so family medicine was a was a, a uh, obviously the best fit there. My, I, I thought about obstetrics as well, but I didn't want to limit myself to half the population. So there I went. Family yeah. medicine. Yeah. You know, we also love continuity of care and relationships. Um, and that's kind of what actually brought us together when we first met. That's right. We're fortunate to have you as a guide and an advisor here for us with Sniffle, but uh, I love that. I think family medicine is incredible. I think primary care is 
they're rocket scientists. They're, they have to solve for everything. It's not just one thing, one specialty, or half the population, um, potentially if you're an OB physician, but for all things, from birth to when we leave this world. That's right. Um, that's, right. that's amazing. What would you say, I know this is, you've, got, you've had a rich career, you've had lots of impact. How did you start in the community health center market? And for those that may be new to this, what is a community health center and, and why do they exist? Sure, sure. So that's maybe the colloquial phrase we use for what is known as a federally qualified health center. So back in the, uh, I believe it was a Bush administration, uh, that uh, that would be the W. Bush administration, there was federal legislation that created uh, a category of health centers that if they met the appropriate criteria, they could be federally qualified. And what that meant was that if, if you had a, a health center that met certain criteria in terms of the patient population that you served, meaning it would be an underserved population, typically uh, heavy Medicaid uh, and Medicare uh, percentages in a, a distressed uh, uh, population uh, census tract, and you had certain other clinical uh, elements um, like uh, in-house lab imaging, uh, pharmacy capabilities, and a board that is comprised uh, of the, the same patient population that you serve, you could uh, qualify for this, this so-called FQHC. And the, the real genius of that program is that it enabled the providers and other caregivers in those practices to be eligible for a special kind of uh, Medicaid funding, Medicare and Medicaid funding, which uh, began what I, I consider to be the, the beginning of a, of a primary care revolution that's expressing itself in a number of different ways now, not necessarily limited to FQHCs. So I trained at a residency program in Waco, Texas, then known as McLennan County Medical, uh, Fam Medical Education and Research Foundation, which was the the uh, longest standing family medicine residency training program uh, west of the Mississippi. And they're in Waco, Texas, of all places. And it was a fantastic uh, learning environment. Uh, during my third year of residency, we had hit some real financial straits. And were it not for our ability to transform into an FQHC, it's a real question whether the residency program would have survived. And so that same... Uh, uh, federally Qualified Health Center today is a, it's a juggernaut in Waco offering uh, behavioral health, dental uh, at like over 17 locations, including medical, and then like 75 million in revenue every year. And it's just, it's a beautiful example of uh, how that model can really meet the needs of an underserved population. And these, there are great examples all over the country, which of course you know about. Yeah. 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 I, I have a real passion for what FQHCs and um, CHCs do and rural health clinics, health equity, health access is so important. And in our country, everyone should be able to do that and, and have great access to great care. And something that we're here to talk about, obviously, is healthcare and how do we use AI and technology to do some of those things. Uh, in our experience, AI and tech, advanced tech, can really help people in rural parts of the country in for patients that don't have maybe reliable transportation or uh, have, a, have a job schedule that doesn't allow them to have a sick day. Um, being able to tap into these virtual solutions, just it brings health equity to people 
in a, in the palm of their hand, it gives them access. And yeah. I think that's so powerful. Agreed. Yeah, the promise of of how we achieve better access, um, more equitable distribution of, of healthcare resources, it, it's elusive, right? And uh, I think enabling technologies like Sniffle, uh, platforms similar to Sniffle, uh, maybe not exactly like all, we're gonna we're gonna see how who who moves the needle. And I think uh, there's probably many right answers, but I'm very excited about the the tech platform that Sniffle brings to bear on that problem. Yeah, yeah, we are too. Um, <laughs> so let me ask, what it you know you've had a rich career helping community health centers, serving the underserved, teaching at a residency program. Um, guiding medical students as they navigate this process, uh, and now serving as chief medical officer, supporting lots of physicians and lots of specialties, caring for a, a major area of the DFW Metroplex that is growing at an accelerated rate. There's lots of places I'm sure you can point to uh, moments of, of great achievement. I wonder if you could narrow down maybe one or two that are something that really stand out for your medical career. Sure. Well, um, obviously, the most memorable chapter was our experience during the pandemic. And uh, so I was and still am at Baylor Scott White Medical Center McKinney. And, you know, that period of time, uh, I'll never forget. It was just a time when our uh, teams at the hospital and uh, many other folks that, that we are connected with throughout the community uh, did an amazing amount of uh, problem solving and adaptation and uh, uh, alignment uh, to meet the needs of, of that primary service area uh, and to meet each other's needs. Uh, it was a tough, tough time. My hospital uh, took care of more COVID patients per hospital bed than any of the hospitals in our large integrated delivery network. So uh, while we are only a 200-bed hospital, we were super busy. And many times we're taking, more than, taking care of more than 200 patients, not necessarily all COVID. But so we, you know, the healthcare needs of the community never went away during COVID. No, uh, and, and so super proud of the, uh, the uh, various solutions that our teams came up with during that time, but even more of the uh, deep admiration and respect that I developed uh, even greater, truly, as a result of going through that and watching my physician, nursing, pharmacy, uh, EMS services colleagues just just uh, just get up and come to work every day. So that was that was terrific. And uh, if I would, uh, in, in another vein, something that I, I just do take great uh, uh, gratitude, I have gratitude for and, and I'm uh, excited about is the experience that I was able to have within Baylor, Scott & White as, as they underwent their journey toward uh, the implementation of enabling technologies and the process, standardization of processes and content that today are really just table stakes for success in the in the acute care uh, hospital services. So things like electronic health records and standardized order sets and ways that helped us design out risk 
and design in safety and efficiency for things like surgical safety timeouts. You know, before we take a per person into surgery now, we have a timeout and it's a standard checklist of items. Baylor Scott and White didn't develop it, but we, we embraced that sort of novel uh, process design. And so I, I'd say those, those two are things that I've just been really uh, proud of in yeah. my time there. That's amazing. I, I would imagine that the pandemic, well, not I, I don't have to imagine. I know. I experienced it firsthand, too. It tested all of us in ways, and the medical community rallied in a remarkable way to continue to care for us while the rest of us were doing the best that we could to hunker down. One of the things that I think really that came through that is that what was validated through the pandemic was we must find other solutions. We have to find other solutions. And one of those is we have to incorporate technology. We have to incorporate and be okay with virtual care. Um, telehealth was, was definitely validated for sure during Absolutely. the pandemic. Absolutely. I, I would say that, and you and I have had this discussion, I mean, the pandemic basically uh, enabled us to crash into the future and, and really fold time, probably moved five to seven years into the future, which in healthcare, uh, which typically moves at a glacial pace, is, is just unthinkable. And so uh, out of sheer necessity, right, to create capacity and, and preserve access, when clinics were closed, uh, uh, we, we pivoted, as did so many other healthcare systems around the country, to virtual platforms. And the, the true serendipity of it is we were in the process of developing a virtual uh, platform just as the pandemic became, as it was becoming clear that the pandemic was going to be uh, as, as serious as it was. So we were very fortunate. We were able to iterate very quickly so that within literally a couple months, we were doing over 70,000 uh, virtual visits a day. Um, wow. Across all of our, you know, like 300 plus uh, ambulatory sites. So it was a, we were very fortunate. I, I wouldn't say uh, we saw it coming, but the preparation, uh, paid off. That's for sure. One of the things prior to the pandemic, this was definitely a conversation in the healthcare community and absolutely since the pandemic, during the pandemic, especially we heard the word burnout, physician burnout, nurse burnout. Is burnout still something that you're seeing remnants of today in, in the medical community? Absolutely. Yeah, N no question. And uh, I think um, it's, not limited to the healthcare sector, but it's it's a very real uh, problem. It's certainly less acute than during the pandemic. But um, what many people don't know is that during the years of the pandemic, 2021 and uh, 2022, there were five to ten times as many physicians retiring in a 12-month period in a number of disciplines across the country, notably anesthesia for one, just as an example, as, as many, five to 10 times as many retirements in a single year than would ordinarily occur in a 12 month period. So we've seen a, just a dramatic reduction in the healthcare workforce and nursing is the exact same. So, so the care burden hasn't gone away and the, the workforce has, has shrunk. And so, um, Back to your point, we've got to find new ways of delivering care that not only meet the needs of the patients, but also uh, help the, the providers and caregivers uh, address the, the care burden um, without uh, ruining their 
well-being. Yeah. yeah. One of the things, it, it's a hard thing to try to pursue this, but it is a pursuit worthy of pursuit and, and effort. And that is how do we help clinicians, physicians, uh, nurse practitioners, PAs, nurses, how do we help them find pathways to reconnect to the joy yeah. of what brought them yeah. to this profession to start with? Yeah. And uh, remove some of the friction and the administrivia that exist in, in the systems today. The bottom line, the way we simply talk about it internally with our team is how do we help people do more with less? And and tech, and, and in particular this new shiny thing in the world called AI, is a tool to come alongside people to help them do that. Because the reality, the workforce is, the numbers are diminishing and we can't grow physicians or nurses or nurse practitioners or PAs fast enough to keep up with five to 10 times the retirement number is, that's it's, astonishing. It is. It is. It was uh, dramatic. And so those those disciplines today are having extraordinary difficulty recruiting, right? Yeah. And so in a growing community like ours, it's a, it's a real it's a real issue. But I, I would say, you know, Chris, we again, we've talked about this, but enabling tech is, it is, it has promise but it's not a panacea. And so while uh, absolutely uh, generative AI is, uh, we don't know how big of a breakthrough it is yet. We all know that it's bigger than we, we can imagine, but the, there are other parts that have to be pulled, drawn along with the introduction of these new technologies that um, are absolutely necessary for like provider well-being let's say and that's connection right mm -hmm. so that's why uh, enabling technology if it doesn't pull along with it the things that make a healthcare encounter really effective enabling tech won't do anything yeah. and so that's that's an important thing to remember i think you're absolutely right it's uh it has to come alongside a physician and a clinician and help them apply their skill set and their expertise and their empathy that's right to that person and help them do more with less and you know I, I comment around this about when the first stethoscope came out when the first lab test came out when the first MRI or imaging machine came out I'm sure people thought what in the world are you thinking you can't throw a few drops of this solution in there and it's going to tell you what's going on in that in that patient but now th these are all tools that we absolutely rely on in our everyday life but it takes time and we're early AI is very early. That's right. But it is a tool, and and I we have we believe that there is great promise uh, in it. So we're talking about lots of the challenges in healthcare, but there's also lots to be optimistic about. And I'm curious, what is something that you're optimistic about um, in healthcare that's taking place today, or, or that you see on the horizon? Sure, sure. Well, we what excites me is the fact that the the delivery of healthcare. Um, is it is in my opinion it's a sacred transaction right it's it's a caregiver who who has knowledge skills and experience that they're bringing to bear on a situation that can relieve suffering promote health uh, and and really uh, help another person so that never changes right and that's that's an really an un it's, it's a bottomless uh, well from which we can draw our own internal motivation and gratification as we try all these new things, right? So, uh, you know, consider, uh, so when I'm talking with, with my teams, that's 
more than anything, we're, we want them to be in touch with that fact that when you're at the bedside or in the office, or whatever, and you're the one that's closest to the patient, you're the most important person in the healthcare, on the healthcare team, regardless of where you happen to fall in the hierarchy. You know, you might be rooming someone in or taking their vitals, or you might be the physician, nurse, or uh, medical assistant, whatever, but, but you're closest to the patient. And so there's so much gratification you can derive from doing your job well, treating people like persons, and, and being a part of that overall enterprise to uh, relieve suffering and promote health. And so I think that that news never changes. And so I'm always excited about that. And I think uh, helping people learn some of the new technologies or delivery methods, but hold on to that, that core tethering, that anchor, um, will enable them to apply these new technologies in a way that, that safeguard that, that sacred transaction, right? Mm -hmm. So that's what I'm It's saying. all about relationships. Yep. We, we would agree. We definitely agree on that. Um, so we've, we've mentioned we, we're, I'm fortunate that we were able to meet through Sniffle, and, and we're happy to, to have your guidance and be on, on our team. But it, you know our take on virtual care, obviously. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious to get your thoughts on the current business models. And there's been some recent transactions here recently in, in some major retailers that are bringing virtual care, trying to bring virtual care to the masses. And obviously, in my biased opinion, I believe that the business model is flawed because they're putting patients into retail situations um, where physicians and clinicians are doing a primary care visit and getting 20 bucks. And my question is, is that concept of that type of a business model, is that good for physicians? Is that good for the clinical workforce? How does that support docs? Yeah, so... I think that, again, we, we live in a country where all kinds of novel uh, delivery methods are going to be uh, experimented with. And the, the good news is uh, we have consumer-oriented patients and families that they will show us what works. So sometimes people do want a very straightforward transaction with the healthcare provider. They don't really want to get into uh, a long-term continuity uh, you know, they just want a transaction. And they're, they're perfectly content to pay 20 bucks, get on, get out. Um, and I think we need to provide that, right? But I also think that um, as far as the healthcare workforce, those folks, I, I don't think that that would be a long-term generative activity. I sure couldn't do that job day in and day out. Um, because again, for me, I derive um, gratification from connecting with people and uh, not just on a, in a consumer transaction. So, so no, I believe that um, well, we need to be very realistic about the scope of the, the services that patients and families want. And uh, we need to be creative with the technologies that can uh, make that simpler, but, but we need to design in the, uh, the, the continuity that gratifies everyone, I yeah. think. And, and long-term, a business model like that, again, in my very biased opinion, I don't know that that supports patients because to use something you just mentioned, you draw gratification from connecting with your patients. I've been fortunate to meet and work with lots of incredible primary care docs across the country. They drive incredible gratification from the connectivity with their patients. Mm -hmm. If these business models continue to flourish and, only it, and, and it becomes more of a transactional thing, that burnout that we were just referencing, 
I see and I could predict that that would probably continue at least on that path, if not accelerate more. And that does an even greater disservice to patients in the future as we try to increase access to health and health equity for all, all of our friends and families and communities across the country. Yeah, it's it's pernicious, no doubt. Do you, um, when you're sitting there and you've got your chief medical officer hat on and you're you're running the business side of how to make sure that all the specialties work together and that the patients are getting what they need and the nurses are getting what they need. And it's, that's a big thinking cap that you've got to wear. When you look to your physicians and you look to the community that you surrounds you all, what can we do as a community or a society, maybe in a larger scale, what can we do better to support our clinical workforce? How can we support physicians and show up for you to make things better for you? Hmm. That's a that's a good question. I think um, you know, healthcare providers. I'll I'll limit myself to you know physicians and advanced practice professionals because I'm not a nurse and 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 their role is different and I have tremendous respect for it. But you know, uh, I can tell you, um, if you haven't worked in a job where you are exposed to uncertainty and to suffering and to limitation and uh, you can't really control for what's going to walk into your office or into your exam room or the hospital that day. If you've never worked in an environment like that, uh, it's difficult to relate to what a healthcare provider experiences. Um, We would say the same of our first responders, right? It's very difficult for for folks who don't uh, know what they experience uh, to to relate to them. So um, I'd say the same thing throughout all public servants, right? The greatest, so when I talk with my EMS providers, law enforcement, my fellow healthcare providers, what really puts gas in people's tanks is just uh, thank you. And uh, uh, when I'm out there, uh, and I get a chance to, you know, buy somebody's coffee behind me who I can see their EMS or whatever. You know, just the, the, the thank you for being willing to es- expose yourself to the uncertainty, to serve for the well-being of, of your fellow citizen. You know, that that's what makes people, it puts gas in those folks' tanks, I can tell you. That's wonderful. Yeah. Well, that is a perfect transition to our final question. So Chris Shembra is a Wall Street Journal uh, best-selling author, and he wrote a book called Gratitude and Pasta. Mm. He makes a delicious pasta sauce. Mm. I'll get you a bottle. And he hosts these great uh, experiential dinners, and the the dinner is surrounded by this one question. And everyone who sits at the table answers this one question. So I'm here to pose that question to you. If you could give credit or thanks to one person in your life that you don't give enough credit or thanks to, who would that be? Oh, that's very easy. (laughs) That would be my wife. Uh, My wife of 32 years, Michelle, who uh, I I am a fast moving, um, high energy person who has not passed the thanks around enough. And uh, Michelle and I've raised four uh, awesome adult men and we have an empty nest now and uh, I would 
absolutely, I don't think I could tell her thank you enough for, for our adventure, which, which continues. So Michelle, thank you. And that's a great question. Well, the trip is going to continue with fall foliage in Colorado right. coming up. So that's there's right. going to be lots of opportunity to share that gratitude. Um, and I want to say thank you to you. And I have incredible gratitude for your um, guidance and your fellowship and your friendship. And thank it's, you. uh, it's a real pleasure. Well, it's mutual, Chris. Thanks so much. We are grateful for the time with Dr. Jeff Kerr. And um, remember, healthcare ain't easy, but it is something that we can do together. Talk to you soon.